during this season of the year, do you dream with the angels of peace on earth, glory to God in the highest, goodwill toward all? Or are your dreams less abstract and more concrete? Are you dreaming of something sparkly and shiny that comes in a small box? I've learned that my wife prefers those sorts of gifts. Or do you dream of something like maybe a new PS5 so you can improve your, your online gaming skills and play against friends and family and people around the country and around the world? Or I've heard that many children this year have Legos at the top of their list. That, that is really a, a very, very popular gift right now. Did you know that the, the Lego store was super crowded with shoppers? They were lined up for blocks. <laughs> I, thank you for the applause, yes. Thank you very much, thank you, thank you. Can you explain the joke to the choir afterwards, please? I love terrible jokes this time of year. Sometimes our, our dreams really do come true. When our boys were little, that nine and, and five years old, they dreamed of having uh, the, a scooter called the Razor. Do you, does any of you remember the Razor scooters? Does somebody remember those? I got to tell you, though, Santa had a hard time finding two of them until the day before Christmas, Mrs. Santa called Mr. Santa at his office and said, we have two in right now. Don't worry, it's all been taken care of. And Nate and Stephen got exactly what they were dreaming of the next morning. And they rode those scooters all day long. Other times, though, our dreams are formed in sadness. When I was in the third grade, it was about four days before Christmas. It was time for bed. My two sisters, Jerry and Carolyn, had been sent upstairs. My little brother, David, who was only about 18 months, he was already asleep. But mom and dad said, Glenn, before you go to bed, come sit with us on the couch here. I could tell something was wrong. They looked very sad. My dad, who's usually loud and gregarious and outgoing, was talking very calmly and softly. They sat me down on the couch and they said, we are sorry to tell you, but Santa may not be coming to our house this year. And because you're the oldest, we want your help to help the other kids have a good day on Christmas, even though there'll be no presents. You know, kind of looking back on it, that's a hard thing to, to do to a third grader. But on the other hand, I now know what was going on in my mom and dad's lives and it was a hard time. They were doing the best they could. Well, the days passed, and I worried about whether or not Santa really was going to come. I sort of believed he wasn't. Went to church on Christmas Eve at the 11 p.m. service. My dad was a pastor, and he said, there's only one service that Jesus wants us to have. It's always at 11 p.m. on Christmas Eve. The service was over. It was about 12.15. We lived in a parsonage, which means it was just right across the street from the church. I climbed into bed about 12.30. I fell asleep dreaming that somehow, someway, Santa might come and there would be presents under the tree. I was first up the next morning, very early. I came down the stairs, I stopped at the bottom, I peeked around the corner, and I couldn't believe it. There were eight presents, two for each of us. My two presents were The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, a book by Mark Twain, and a basketball 
I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe my dream came true. That's still one of my favorite Christmas memories of all time. What do you dream of this week? A, a hand to hold? A cheek to kiss? A beautiful meal with family gathered around the table in a simple yet warm celebration? What do you dream of? Our dreams often guide us. Our dreams send us in the direction often, often, that opens up our lives. Isaiah, who we heard from a few moments ago, was a prophet 700 years before the time of Jesus. He dreamed of the little tiny kingdom of Judah and its capital of Jerusalem following in the ways of God, giving themselves over to God's shalom and God's peace, making sure that all of God's children were cared for, had enough to eat, a place to sleep. Isaiah dreamed that that could be coming true under King Ahaz's leadership. But King Ahaz, he was a weak and vacillating leader. He cared more about himself than anyone else, really. And the, the part they cared about was making sure everybody was happy. You want to make sure no one's happy? Make your goal, making everyone happy, because no one will be at the end. King Ahaz was afraid of his own shadow. He was afraid of all the things that were happening around him. And he put his trust not in the ways of God, but in the ways of the spear and the sword. You see, there was a, a, a ruling empire in those days called the Assyrians. They were to the north of Judah. They were brutal. They were violent. They were the bullies of the ancient Near East. If they didn't like you, they would just as soon kill you as talk to you. And that's who Ahaz aligned himself with. He aligned his little kingdom with the powerful, mighty kingdom of Assyria. And what's the problem when you join yourself or align yourself with a bully? Eventually, the bully turns on you. Eventually, the bully takes out whatever he has against you, on you. And sure enough, a few years later, his kingdom will be decimated. Ahaz's, Ahaz's lead, leadership will be considered the worst, one of the worst in Judah's history because he didn't have any faith in the ways of God. Walter Brueggemann, a great Old Testament scholar, summarizes it this way, if you have faith, you have a future. Ahaz put his faith not in the ways of God, but instead handed his own life over to the bully, and everything he dreamed of seeing was destroyed. But even in the midst of Ahaz doing that, Ahaz shares this word, this, this sign, this concrete sign of a woman giving birth to a child, a boy whose name will be Emmanuel. It literally means God with us. What Isaiah was saying to the king was, look, king, you can still turn around. You can still turn this kingdom around. This child for you will be a sign in your presence that God is here as well, that God is with you in this moment. As dangerous and as frightening and as scary as it feels, God is still here, even in the moment named now. Please, king, put your trust in this God. It's faith or fear. It's trust or giving in to your own self-inflicted trouble. Isaiah utters some pious things, says something the things that sound sort of religious or holy, and continues to trust only in the Assyrians. And as a result, they lose everything. You know, it's said that Psalm 46 was most likely written during the time of Isaiah when he was preaching and prophesying. 
You might remember Psalm 46 when I recite it for you. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present form of help in times of trouble and danger. It's a beautiful psalm, probably written around the time of King Ahaz and the prophet Isaiah. It's the inspiration for Martin Luther's very famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. I remember today the Sunday after 9-11. I was serving a church in Atlanta. On that Sunday after that dreadful, horrific, terrible terrorist attack on our land, that our sanctuary was packed. Every seat was filled. We brought in a hundred extra chairs and even those weren't enough. There were people lined up all around the sides, all the way over on the sides, having to stand because there was no room for them. I don't remember what the sermon was about, but I remember the closing hymn. It was Luther's beautiful, a mighty fortress is our God. As we stood and sang that with one voice, I could see, I could see the tears on every single face tumbling down their cheeks. It was a powerful moment, a powerful reminder that God was still present there. Were we afraid? Of course we were. If you were alive then, you remember how terrible it was. There were rumors and rumors and rumors of rumors. There were ter it seemed as though there were terrorists in every backyard, in every place. All kinds of things were being said that were about to happen. We were afraid, we were frightened, but we stood together with a singular voice and said, we know, we trust. We believe that God is here even now. Faith gives us a future. Matthew, writing his gospel, his good news of the life of Jesus Christ, reads through the book of Isaiah to find hints and signs of who Jesus is had become of who he is, of what his ministry was about. He comes to Isaiah chapter 6, and he reads this verse, and the young woman shall conceive and bear a child, and his name will be Emmanuel. And what, what Matthew hears, what Matthew sees, he hears an echo. He sees a picture of who Jesus is. Not that Isaiah was predicting it. Isaiah was writing to his own time. But when Matthew reads it, he sees that there's more than just a moment in history 700 years before. He sees that this word from 700 years uh, ago actually speaks to his moment, one that will speak to all of us throughout, throughout history. And so he, he brightens it, he enlightens it, he shines a spotlight on it so that we understand that something holy and amazing and incredible is happening here. And, and by the way, just a little Bible nerd stuff here for, for a moment. He reads the Hebrew Bible in a Greek translation. The original Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, was written in Hebrew, of course. But about, oh, I don't know, seven decades or so before the time of Christ, a group of scholars got together and translated it into Greek. Greek was sort of the English of its day. It was the universal language used at least around the Mediterranean world. And when he reads it, he reads not a young woman, but a virgin, because the Greek word parthenos literally means most of the time virgin. A virgin shall conceive. This becomes an important part of Matthew's story. Now again, stay with me for a moment here. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying in this strange, wild, never before seen way, God is making something new happening. Matthew's shining the spotlight bright here on this birth to see that the holy is coming into being, coming into the world. It's a new beginning. It's much like Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, in the beginning, in the new beginning, in the birth of Christ, God was doing amazing, unbelievable things through the Holy Spirit. 
You know, if you go back a chapter before, that's in chapter 2 of Matthew. If you go back at the, at the, at the beginning of chapter 1, you can read the begots, you know, so-and-so begot, so-and-so begot, so-and-so, and then he begot, and then, oh, David, oh, we've heard of David. Then there's a lot of other names you haven't heard. And it seems like kind of a boring bit of Scripture, but Matthew's actually shining the spotlight there as well. He wants us to understand this whole birth is a string of amazing events. There are four women named in the begots, in the genealogy of Jesus. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. In antiquity, you would never have a genealogy list the women. There, that would just wouldn't happen. Matthew steps outside of it. He puts them in there. And not only does he list them, all four of these women are foreigners. Do you see what Matthew is saying? When this child comes into the world in this amazing, crazy, and wild way that no one's ever seen before, it will be a sign. Because look at all these folks from outside, from the outside who have been part of this all along. It's a sign that this child is given to the world, to everyone. Miracles in the Bible are never the point. The miracles always point to something greater, broader, and even more amazing. But then there's Joseph, Mary's betrothed. All he knows is his soon-to-be wife is pregnant with a child and it's not his. And he knows the Bible. He knows the Bible that it says if your wife, if you're betrothed or you're married and your wife is pregnant with a child that's not yours, you can send her away or you can even have her put to death. It's a brutal word. You can find it. It's there. Now, Joseph was a kind and gracious man, so he's not going to put her down. He's just going to send her away. But even that is an almost fundamentalist reading of the text. It's like he's got a bumper sticker on the back of his donkey that says, the Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it. It's crazy. Why would you think this way, Joseph? But his faith is informed by fear. Like Ahaz 700 years ago, he can't think in a complex and difficult situation of finding a way through. He takes the easy route and simply says, well, that's what it says. I believe it. That settles it. I'm just going to send her away. The problem with that, of course, is it's just a slower death sentence. She'll have to become a slave. If she doesn't, she most likely will die. She may die as a slave. Slaves are treated brutally, horribly, horrifically. It's a death sentence for her and for the child. And then Joseph that night dreams. He dreams and an angel speaks to him in the dream. Do you remember what the angel says? Joseph, son of David, connecting to the genealogy. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. Leave the fear behind. Check your Check your fear at the door. Something new and amazing is being done. This child is being given to the world by the very Spirit of God to lead the world toward the gift of love itself, the star of love, if you will. It's an amazing moment. Joseph goes from one who is filled with nothing but fear, with a, faith, with a fear-filled faith, to a model of faith. He, now, he no longer uses the Bible in simplistic ways to solve things in, in, in arrogant and rude, theologically disgusting ways. No, what does he do? He instead enjoys using the Bible as a way to help him think through the complexity of life. To think openly and courageously about what God might be doing next. It's a beautiful story of love came down 
of fear transformed into faith, of Mary's willingness to become what our friends in the Greek church call the Theotokos, the mother of God. But it's easy to miss the presence of God in our world with ugly headlines, in our world that seems to be more and more filled with hatred and, and violence, it's easy to think, oh, it, just, it just can't be. Uh, it's easy to become cynical. Maybe we'll go through the motions, do whatever, but it's, it's easy to just kind of throw up our hands and say, I, I just can't care anymore. But if we can find the courage to open our hearts, our eyes, our minds, our ears, we just might see or hear. The very first time Julie and I led a trip to the Holy Land, a visit at the end of the trip was outside of Bethlehem in the area called the Shepherd's Fields. This was the, the area where the shepherds, according to tradition, were on the night that Jesus was born. And as part of those fields, there are some caves scattered about. And you can take your group into those caves. And our, our guide did. He led us over to, where, to one of these caves where some benches had been installed. And we sat down in there. And he told us how shepherds behaved 2,000 years ago. It was, it was quite fascinating. But it was kind of, a, it's kind of a strange day. It was the end of October. It was unusually hot in, in the Holy Land that, that year. It was in the 80s. It was, it was humid, uh, hazy, uh, just hot, kind of ugly, and yet our, our guide had suggested to Julie and her friend Lauren that they lead the group in Christmas carols. I thought, this is kind of a dumb idea. We're, we're about to give out Halloween candy to our group tomorrow on the bus, and we're going to sing Christmas carols on a hot, hazy day in a cave that probably didn't really have shepherds in it. And they started to sing, Oh, come all ye faithful. And I'm sure the group could hear my eyes rolling in my head. Uh, we're singing this. And it was gorgeous. And then they sang, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And I thought it was hearing angels. And then they sang, Silent Night, Holy Night. and I couldn't stop the tears. It was hot and hazy and humid, and God was there. The Spirit, the presence of the Spirit was there in that place, and I, I did not know it. The season for Christmas, are you gonna open your eyes, your ears, and your mind, and your heart long enough to see or hear the presence of God? My friend Peter Gomes helps us with this. Let's put his words up on the screen. Christmas belongs to those who recognize not the sense of the holidays, but the real presence of God in their lives and in their world. Not simply once upon a time, long ago and far away, but here and now, inhabiting our hearts and struggling with us against the tangible realities that surround us. Do you hear the beauty of his words? God is present in the here and now, struggling with us in the tangible realities, not waving some magic wand like some magician in the sky, but struggling with us. Emmanuel, God, with us. Do you dare this season to dream with Mary? to dream with Joseph, to dream with God.
Open your heart. Open your mind. Open your eyes. And see.